All right. Hey, welcome everybody. Glad you guys can be here with us this morning as we uh, continue to walk through our series in the book of Romans. If this is your first time here, first I want to say happy Palm Sunday. And my name is Ricardo Stewart and I'm one of the pastors here. A little bit about redemption. We are one church and we have multiple congregations. We meet in various places throughout the valley as well as in Flagstaff. Uh, we believe all of life is all for Jesus, meaning there's nothing underneath the Lordship of Christ that we don't believe that Christ himself is redeeming. Therefore, we seek to make disciples in response to that truth. Uh, the best way that we go about making disciples is in Sunday services as well as redemption communities. Uh, redemption communities are a smaller gathering of people who meet in different places throughout the city to encourage one another in the word and to fellowship with one another. If this is something you're interested in, to be a part of a redemption community, the best thing you could do is fill out the information card in front of you, uh, put your name, your email address, any questions you may have, and you can drop them off in the back uh, by the, excuse me, you can drop them off in the back at the connect desk on your way out, or you can drop them off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back um, by the doors. One of the things that we have today is we have our connect time, and connect is a 10-minute uh, time right immediately following the service um, in the room behind the soundboard for about 10 minutes. If you're asking um, the question of how do I get connected to this church, what's my next step at this church, how do I get more involved, how do I know more about this church, 10 minutes after the service, uh, you can leave your children in children's ministry, um, pick them up later. We'll have an opportunity for that. I'll give you more information on that at the end of the service. A couple announcements that I have. Uh, first is next week is Holy Week. So starting tomorrow, we will be in Holy Week. Um, with that, we have Good Friday um, on the Friday service, and we have two services, 5.30 a.m. No. <laughs> it's not true. Gotcha. Uh, 5.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. for Good Friday. There'll be child care for both of those services. And then Easter. On Easter, we have four services all in the morning. So 7 a.m., 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., and 11.30 a.m. I will sleep very good on, on Easter evening. But four services and what we have. Uh, we ask that if you could go to that sunrise service at 7 a.m., um, stay away from the 10 a.m., but regardless, bring people with you, people who have never heard the gospel. We said this last week, and it's not a joke. Don't bring people who go to other churches. We don't want other people from other churches here. We want people who don't know Jesus um, to come and hear about the gospel and hear about Christ. And so we will meet four times again on Easter. On your way out, if you haven't already, if you grab one of these things that the guys put together, um, it is a flyer here that says Easter service. Service, and it has all of our service times as well as our address and contact information that's on here. You can take it, one, as a reminder for you to invite some friends, or you can take it and you can hand it out to family members, coworkers, people that live in your neighborhood, whatever you may have. And so that's good. The next announcement that I have um, is a video for you guys to be able to see. And so if you guys would direct your attention towards both screens, uh, you have opportunity to see that. I struggle with drug addiction. I struggle with pride. I struggle with an eating disorder. I struggle with depression and anxiety. I struggle with shame from past abuse. I struggle with anger. Together in Christ, we are moving forward. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 12-week journey to the book Redemption, starting April 26th. Okay, what you guys just saw is a promo to our Redemption Exodus groups. And Redemption Exodus groups is usually people say, oh, that's the recovery groups that you have for your church. No, um, it's not just for people who have addictions. It's for anybody who's breathing. Um, and it's a class that you could take. It's a group. It's gender-specific. It's 12 weeks long. 
and I highly recommend it. It was put together by some guys in Seattle, and many churches throughout the country are using it. We've been using it at Redemption for a few years, and, and people who have gone through it will tell you it is definitely worth it. I myself have gone through it. Um, our whole elder team went through it because Pastor Tim Anderson, who oversees it, um, he took us all through it, and it was, it was worth it. It was worth it. And so no matter what your issues are, here's the thing. Everyone has issues, okay? If you say, I don't have issue, that's an issue. It's called lying, right? And so... <laughs> It is for any and everybody. And if you want information about that, first, the date that was on the video was wrong. Um, the date is actually Monday, April 28th, 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. We're going to meet here in the sanctuary, and then they'll kind of disperse from there into groups. Go to the website, redemptionaz.com, and you can sign up there. Or if you're going, I want to sign up now, take that information card, put your name and email address, write um, Redemption Exodus Group, or just put Exodus Group, or put Moses, whatever it is that you can remember, um, write that down, put it in the, um, the offering boxes, or drop it off at the Connect desk. We will get back to you and get you involved. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It is, it is definitely uh, something that will be worth your time. That's all I have for time announcements. We're going to continue the book of Romans, so if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. And go ahead and keep it raised. And then if you have a Bible, meet me in Romans chapter 9. This is the last few verses of Romans chapter 9. Um, I promise you, we'll never teach through it again. Um, I may not. And so we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, verses 30, all the way to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. All right. And so as you turn there, let me kind of recap for us. Here's where we've been. At the very end of Romans chapter 8, Paul makes a beautiful statement. It was a promise. And he says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Right? Height, nor death, angels, nor demons. Nothing will be able to separate us. Well, that was a promise. And then what Paul does in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11 is he begins to address a particular people in this Roman church. The Roman church in itself is a makeup of Jews as well as Gentiles. It's a multi-ethnic church. However, Paul understands and assumes that there will be question, questions that will come primarily from his Jewish people, from his, his audience that are like him, that are, that are ethnic Jewish people. And the question was, you just made a promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God, but we remembered that there was a promise that God was going to save Israel, and not all of Israel is saved. And so did God renege on his promise? And that promise, as we said last two weeks, is that in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham. And he promised in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that he was going to bless his family. At the time, they had zero children. God miraculously worked in their life to have a child. And he says, I'm going to bless your family and all the other nations I'm going to bless as well. And I'm going to use you for my cosmic plan of redemption. That God himself, the way that he was going to redeem all of creation, was going to work through a family. Well, the Israelites interpret that, that it was going to be primarily about the Israelites. That it wasn't going to be primarily about grace, but that it would be about race. And so now when they hear this promise that God will never, that nothing could separate us from the love of God, they're beginning to think, okay, well, it seems like God's promises aren't true. His word is not sure. And then Paul in Romans chapter 9 begins to say, no, I care a lot about the Israelites. And I care about those who are not saved, who do not trust in Christ. He says, even to the point where I wish myself were accursed and cut off that they may be included in. But then verse 6 in chapter 9, he says, but it's not as if the word of God didn't fail. 
And then for, for the last two weeks, he built on that argument saying God's word does not fail. And so he's talking about the salvation of all people, Jews and Gentile, but particularly talking about the Jewish people. And then what he says is, we, for the past two weeks, we talked about how God began to work upstream. And we begin to show God's sovereignty in salvation, primarily through an act called election. And we said this was all upstream, apart from us, nothing that we would do good or bad had happened before we were born, and this dynamic of love that God began to work and ensure that there would be an innumerable amount of people who we don't know who they are until they trust in Jesus downstream. And what I said is, for the bulk of Romans 9, it's upstream. After that, it's downstream. So, past two weeks, God's sovereignty. What God had been doing and God had been working, he chose a man by the name of Abraham. He chose his son, Isaac, chose one of his sons that were twins, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and they became the nation of Israel. And from there, Christ came, that God himself came to fulfill the promise that he promised to Abraham, and that it was going to be fulfilled in Christ, that every single thing in the Old Testament began to point and hint towards Christ, faith in God and what he would do, ultimately faith in God through his word. And then we read in the Gospel of John that the Word of God became flesh, and everything, ultimate reality, everything in which we needed to be saved was found by faith in Jesus. And so that was the last couple of weeks. And all upstream God. Romans at the latter part of chapter 9, as well as chapter 10, excuse me, that was upstream, is all downstream. What we need to do, what we're called to do, to respond to the Gospel, and by faith. And, And the bigger question that Paul is asking is why aren't people being saved? And, and, and then more particularly, why aren't religious Jewish people being saved? It, it's kind of the so what to what he said in chapter 9, 6 through 29. He's going, what's happening? What's the reason? And so that's what we'll pick up this morning in Romans chapter uh, 9, verses 30. I'll read all the way to chapter 10, verse 4. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would illuminate it. That you would teach us, remind us, instruct us that our life is found in Christ. That righteousness is found not in ourselves, but is a foreign righteousness that is given to us in Christ. That your love and a relationship with you that endures throughout eternity, Lord, is found not in what we do or what we don't do, but in Christ. I pray both Christian and non-Christian this morning would be able to understand that the very core of the gospel, that it's about your son Jesus. How you have sent him for us to redeem us and redeem a people, Lord, who would trust in you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Shortly after I became a Christian, I was a young Christian, I started teaching and I was coaching at a particular high school way on the West Valley. 
And there was a guy who was leading me, and we were, we were evangelizing. We were sharing the gospel with all the coaches we can share with. And um, there were two particular guys that I'm going to use for this story. Um, and these two, two particular guys at the time were not trusting in Jesus. Um, one of them was a younger guy who had never gone to church, never been involved with anything religious, nothing. And the other guy had been deeply religious, deeply involved in a particular church, and, and very religious. But neither one of them really rested in, rested in Christ. And so the, the, the older guy, um, who was really buff and really aggressive, and, and uh, that's going to make sense here in a little bit, is every time we would share the gospel with him, he would get so angry. And if you've ever shared the gospel with someone who's stronger and buffer than you, it's all bad, right? Because when they start getting angry, it's like, I don't believe that. It's like, but I kind of, no, I don't, I don't believe it either, right? I mean, it's like, wait a minute. And he, he, would, he would just say, Religion, essentially his words were, I have done everything I need to do, and yet I don't find rest in God. And what he was saying was, um, the Bible, when I read it, tells me to be faithful to my wife. I'm faithful to my wife. To provide for my children, I provide for my children. I don't use bad language. Um, and he just listed thing after thing after thing. And what he wanted to know is, how can I be secure in a relationship with Jesus? And I, and I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, stand away. There's nothing you can do to secure your relationship with Jesus, right? And I waited, right? Punched me, that came back at him again. And I said, listen, just to let you know, there's nothing you can do. You have to rest and trust on Jesus' finished work on your behalf. There's not enough um, prayers you can pray. There's not enough scriptures you can read. There's not a particular family that you can be raised in. There's, there's not enough effort. There's not enough things that you can do to ensure a relationship with Jesus only by trusting in the finished work of Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection, that's all you have to do. And he just says, that seems too easy. So that's all you have to do, right? Nothing. Meanwhile, this other guy, we're sharing this to this guy in the locker room, in the coach's locker room, and this other guy is, is literally putting on deodorant. He stops, walks over to us after buff guy leaves, we breathe a little bit better. And then, and then he says, I believe that. I want to believe that. I want to trust in that. If all I have to do is trust in Jesus to be right with God, I, I want to trust in that. And you go, like one guy, I mean, never went to a church service, never once walked with the Lord. I mean, he didn't know anything. I mean, when I say he didn't know anything, we start reading the Bible. He didn't know who Noah was. He didn't, he didn't know about the ark. He didn't, he, he didn't even know Adam and Eve, right? And I'm like, Adam and Eve, you don't have to be a Christian to know about Adam and Eve. Like, just be a human in America for a while, right? No idea. And I said, you didn't know about Adam and Eve? He goes, a little bit. He goes, but I didn't know they were naked. And I said, oh, there you go. All right. That's all you saw, huh? All right. Didn't know anything. He had no idea. And, and he wasn't seeking God, and, and yet he was found by God because he just trusted in Jesus' finished work. Meanwhile, buff guy, um, he, he knew everything. I mean, he knew his Bible front to back, but did not believe that you can have eternal security, resting that you were loved by God and never be separated from that love unless he continued to strive and strive and strive. And so he was restless. Um, one who was seeking God and couldn't find him because he could not just trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. By God's grace and grace alone, through faith and faith alone, in Christ. He couldn't do it. This guy, not seeking God, putting on deodorant, trusts in Jesus, right? Buff guy didn't get it. Deodorant guy got it. I'm sure there's some sort of parallel. I'm not sure. Um, but I believe that's what Paul is saying here. He's given this picture of saying, 
now talking about the Jewish people. Why aren't they believing? They are deeply, deeply religious. They know the Bible. They know God. They know things about God. But they don't trust in his son as a Messiah. They don't rest in him. Maybe they add to it. Maybe it's Jesus plus their behavior. But they don't trust in Christ alone. And he says, meanwhile, the Gentiles, those who didn't, who were not raised in quote-unquote church, who were not raised with the things that many of us were raised in, they got it. And then Paul begins to say, say why that's happening. And so we'll walk through this text here, verse 30. It says, what shall we say then? Paul asked that question. What shall we say to everything that happened in Romans 9 up to verses 29? And he says this, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Here's what Paul is saying is, there there, there are two different groups here. I'm two different people. Both separated by God, from God by their own sin. Um, some people who had everything needed as a gift to be the point to their need for Jesus. Other people who didn't even have that. However, the people who didn't have it, they believed, they trusted. The people who would have been most likely to become Christians, most likely to trust in Jesus, because they had of all the benefits and all the gifts, they didn't. Now, now Paul is not saying that every Jewish person didn't believe. Paul himself was Jewish. And he's not saying that every Gentile person did believe. He's just speaking categorically and saying, why did they not believe? And he says, well, first, let's deal with the Gentiles. He says the Gentiles believed and received righteousness because they trusted in God by faith. It was always about faith. If you can recall last week when we were doing a little bit of Q&A, someone asked, how can people in the Old Testament and New Testament, how we know, how were they saved? And we said in the Old Testament, it was always by God's grace, unmerited favor, and by faith in who God was and what he said. In the New Testament, it's about God's grace, his unmerited favor, a gift to us, and by faith in that, and we get to look to Christ. Whereas the Old Testament, they look forward to what God would do, and now in the New Testament times, we look back to what God did in the life and death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. But it's always been about grace, God's unmerited favor and faith. And then Paul comes back in these verses to that word that he's been using throughout Romans, particularly in Romans 1, chapters 1 through chapter 8, and that's righteousness. And speaking here, when he uses the word righteousness in all these verses, he's talking about justification, how a person is made right before God, and how a person, a man or a woman or a child, has relationship with God, and and how a person is viewed upon by God. And so he says the Gentiles, they trusted not in their own ability to be righteous, but they trusted that they had zero righteousness and that the only way that they would find it was not in themselves, but they would find it completely in Christ. And they trust that Christ would be their righteousness. They believed in it. They rest their entire life in it. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to trust in yourself or your abilities or anything that you could do. It's to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. His sending of his spirit in our lives to be able to believe and trust him for everything. And that's not just how we become Christians, but that's even how we grow as Christians. Repenting and believing in the work of Christ. He says, Deodorant guy type people got it because they realized their need, and that was Jesus and Jesus alone. The, the, the Jewish people says they didn't get it, and here's why, Paul says. Verse 32, it says why. It says because they, they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Uh, and so here's, here's what he's saying here. 
He's saying they looked at the law of God, the Mosaic law, which were a gift from God. In fact, what God was doing in giving them the law was he was setting them apart as a people. And not apart because he didn't care about the rest of the world, but that was a particular people in which God was going to save the world. That they would be a unique people set, set apart by God. And he would give them ways in which to express faith and love to them. But they were never going to be able to do everything that the law required. And in doing that, those were gifts that God would say, here's a gift to you so that you would know you cannot reach this requirement and you would reach out to me and I would be your provider. The law in itself would show that there's no way that they could have lived up to that. But instead, they tried to live up to it um, in very moralistic ways. Now, some of you may go, okay, listen, I'm not a deodorant guy. I'm not buff guy. I'm neither. I don't wear deodorant and I don't work out, so that's fine. Very contextual here in Tempe, by the way. <laughs> you, you, you may say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I'm not really getting here. I don't, I don't get it. Well, here, here's what Paul is saying. Some people, some people rest and rely their standing before God and even before others. So that's vertical before God and others off their morality, off what they're able to do. And this is not just Christians. These are just people in general. And there's a, sit- there's a set of rules that everybody has, whether it's an environmental rule or whether it's something that's biblical or religious. And so this type of person comes to the Bible and looks at all the imperatives, what God has called us to do, good things, and then looks at those things, makes a list out of them, and lives their whole life trying to do those things. But they do it at the exclusion of the indicatives of Scripture. And the indicatives of Scripture is what, who God is and what he has done. And when you read through the New Testament, especially the epistles of Paul, what you see is he usually starts with indicatives, what God has done, good news, what what God has done in Christ. And so our imperatives, how we love our wives and our children, how we obey, how we live generously and selflessly and um, sacrificially, all flow out of our faith in Jesus, not something we do to earn a relationship with God. Well, the Jewish people, not unlike us, begin to see all of, the, all of the lists and the things, and they tried to do them. They didn't do them perfectly. Just like we will say, hey, nobody's perfect. You know, nobody's perfect. But what happens is, is when you begin to measure yourself horizontally, you're going to be okay. You know why? There's always somebody worse than you. Yeah, even you. Right? No matter, morally, there's always going to be somebody worse than you. And so you're always going to have a leg up. And here's what religion, when I say religion... I'm using it in the pejorative way. Here's what religion does. Religion that's void of faith only in Christ is it begins to make you minimize sin. Like, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that dude, right? Like, I'm, not, I'm bad, but I'm not like her. My, my mom would always say this, and you know, my mom uses like a million phrases. I tell you guys all the time. There's like a million she's used. She'd always say, um, you know, you're only as good as the company you keep. And every time she'd come visit me in college and she'd see my friends and we'd see us hanging out and whatnot, and she'd go, oh, you know what? You're only as good as the company you keep. Forever, I'm like, I don't even know what that means, mom, but whatever, right? And then I realized, okay, you're only as good as your friends, right? And you're going to become like your friends. And then what I would tell her is I would list off all my roommates. And I would say, this guy, I'm better than him because of this. Do you know he does this? So, nope, not going to be him. Um, and this guy, he, he, he does these things. And this guy, he, you know, he doesn't tip when he goes out to eat. I'm better than all of these guys, right? Like, I knew I had my own issues, but I'm better than them, right? And there was a sense. And you know what people used to tell me, too? Oh, you're a good guy. You're a good guy. Ricardo, you're a good guy. You're such a good guy. You know what you start believing? I'm a good guy. <laughs> you're right. I am. That's what I just start saying, right? And when I became a Christian, and when my friends would ask me, well, why are you a Christian? I was like, man, I realized my sin. Oh, sin. No, 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 no. You've always been a good guy. You've been better than most people. Well, that, 
off whose standards? If the, 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 the goons that I hung out with or, 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 or God? God is not grading on a curve. He's going, hey, you went to ASU, you were able to do that? That's amazing, right? You went to Stanford, you're in trouble, right? No, he, he, he's, not, he's not doing that. He has a standard. It's holiness and it's righteousness. Well, the Israelites, they, they looked at God's standard. They saw how holy it was. They saw how righteous it was. But they looked at it as a means, as a ladder to climb up to God. And if they can climb the furthest, then they can get there. And that's how they would have righteousness, not realizing that the whole purpose of it is that they can ne- there was never a ladder. That God himself was going to have to come. And that he had promised that he would come. And that he would have righteousness for them. They would have to trust in him. But let's go a little further. The reason why we like rules and lines and laws is because we like to measure. And we can control. If you tell me the four things I need to do, I'll do those things. And then I'll know that I'm good. Christianity is not about controlling anything. It's about trusting. Christianity is not about try harder. It's about trust more. Christianity in itself is not even about having big faith. It's not about the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith in Christ. In fact, when you read through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and you see the men and women who trusted in God, their faith was very, 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 very small. But their God was incredibly big. When you minimize sin because you were kind of better than most of the people around you, or you could do some of the things of the Bible, you could check a box, a religious activity box, Um, when you minimize your sin, you have no need for grace. You're rejecting the gift in which God gives you. And that's exactly what happens to us, and that's exactly what was happening here to the Jewish people. Here's what Paul says about the rejection of that gift, verse 33. It says, as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 8 and even 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 3 and Psalm um, 118. All of them use this reference. And it was God himself speaking first through the prophet of Isaiah and saying, I'm going to lay a stone. But guess what? The builders are going to reject it. There are some people who are going to trust in this stone and they will never be put to shame. People who have done the worst things in the world, who have been apart from me, who have sinned tremendously, they will never be put to shame. And there's going to be people who have done a bunch of religious things and a bunch of good things and who have had my law and have been around me and knew things about me but never trust me. They're going to trip over it. They're not even going to see it. They're going to be so close to Jesus, but they're just going to hover around it or go around it and never dig deep into the good news of Christ. He says, this is what's going to happen. And Paul is saying, this is what happened to very moralistic people, that they begin to trust more in their moralism, or in this particular case, trust in their religion and not in their God. Trust more in what they know about things than the one in whom they're worshiping. And I believe this is applicable for those of us in this room who are Christians. And even those who are not Christians, there are a set of line and laws and rules that we all live by, and we feel good when we live up to those things, and we feel bad when we don't live up to those things. What Paul is promising what the gospel promises, we can always have a sense of confidence and of rest, of meaning, of purpose, of value, of dignity in Christ Jesus by faith, not by works. Amen? But that, that's, what, that's, that's what he's saying is, but some will trip over it because they want to add to it. They want to add to it. Well, then Paul pauses there for a second and saying the reason why they didn't get in, the reason why anyone doesn't get in, the reason why they're not trusting for salvation is because they're not believing in Jesus. 
They're not resting in Christ in Christ alone by faith and faith alone. Um, you have to ask yourself the question, is there something else other than Jesus that I'm placing my value, um, my purpose, my dignity, my meaning on? Anything for relationship with God, even with others. So really good things. Is it my marriage and how good it looks? Is it in my behavior and how upright I am? Um, is it my children and how they become and how they grow up? Is it my vocation? Is it my career? Is it my academics? All really good things. But am I trusting on these things? Am I resting on these things? Per- personal uh, example. This morning, I usually get up really early on Sunday mornings, go through my notes, uh, drink a cup of tea, and then look over my notes and drink a cup of coffee, and then walk, walk to this coffee place and then drink another cup of coffee. And then... <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> and then Jason Raber comes and picks me up. Well, I'm walking on the way to this particular coffee place, and, um, and I'm praying and, and, and speaking in tongues, the whole deal, right? And so I'm doing all that, and, and then I begin to, it, it occurred to me that I forgot to do something. And yesterday I was supposed to write a blog for the website, and Jim had reminded me, hey, can you write this blog? And I said, yeah, I'll get to it. And I didn't do it. And immediately I started thinking about, what am I going to tell him? What excuse am I going to make up? Whoa, I can't make an excuse, right? I'm a pastor, right? I can't lie to him, but I could. I kind of could. I could say I was busy. I was kind of busy. What was I doing, right? And I'm going through this in my head, and I'm feeling all insecure. And I literally, I'm about to preach a message on your acceptance being in Jesus and nothing along. And I'm afraid of Jim, right? (laughs) God, Jim, right? And I, 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 I had to stop, I laughed, and I confessed, Lord, this is how easy it is to move away from the gospel. I should be honest with him. I was really busy yesterday. I couldn't do it, right? No, it's not true. I forgot. <laughs> I totally forgot. But the purpose of the reason I share that is I'm getting ready, had practiced, had studied, had, had looked over the notes, knowing that what I'm going to say is no matter what you do, what matters is nothing extra. It's about Jesus. Your acceptance, your approval can't be based upon other people. It has to be on Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm walking up the street having a fear of rejection of Jim. That's how easy it is for anybody, anybody. So you have to ask yourself the question, what is that for you? Because to the person who's a Christian, um, it's repent of whatever it is, if it's people's approval or fear of rejection or comfort or whatever it is, repent from resting in a good thing to resting in Christ alone, who is alone is sufficient for you and good news for you. If you're not a Christian, um, it is whatever you're looking to, and it's repent and believe in Jesus It's the way you become a Christian, and it's the exact same way that you grow as a Christian. It's relying not upon yourself or anything that you could do or anything you've done, good or bad, but relying solely upon Jesus. So Paul says, people will stumble over it. Many of the Jews have stumbled over it. And then he takes a step back and says, okay, here's my feelings for them. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brothers, or brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He goes back to that same pastoral, caring tone that he has in Romans chapter 9, at the very few, beginning of the, um, chapter 9, uh, the first three or four or five verses. And that is he cares about them. He's talking primarily here about Jewish people. Because my heart, my desire, my prayer is that they may know Jesus. Like, I, I want them to know Jesus. And then he says this interesting thing here in verse 2 and 3. He says, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Meaning God had an acceptance. He had a righteousness. But they didn't want that. They wanted their own righteousness before God. 
They wanted to be able to do something and offer it up to God that he would accept when the gospel was that God did something in Christ and offered it to us that we may accept it and receive with it the righteousness that is promised to us in Jesus. But in verse 2, he makes this statement. He says, I bear them witness, meaning this is true. They have a zeal for God. I think that's a warning, especially for Christians. Because he's not saying these are like the deodorant guy guy. Like, I mean, I told you about the deodorant guy. He didn't know anything, right? I mean, it was awesome discipling him. He didn't know. There, all the stuff that many of us grew up on, he never knew VBS. He never knew Awana. He never marched in anybody's army. Um, he, never, he never had a flannel graph. He didn't any of that. He's clueless, but he trusted. But what about people who did march in the army? What about people who did VBS? What all the things that many of us who grew up around church we experience and are happy that we never have to do again? What, what about that? Well, he says, you can have a zeal for God. There's a way in which you could be zealous for even the things of Scripture and totally miss the gospel. Totally miss Jesus. Uh, you, you, you could be trying to clean up your language. You could be doing everything that the Bible does tell you to do. But you could be doing it in your own strength. And so it looks good, but eventually it's going to come down crashing. Eventually it's going to come down crashing. Meaning if you place your value, your worth, your faith in anything else other than the rock who is Jesus, it may look good for a while, but it's going to collapse and it's going to be bad. It, it, there's, there's, here's an illustration, kind of a silly one, but um, a year ago, a year and a half ago, we had this bigger redemption community. We had all these people that was in our, in our RC that had come to our house and we had to use every chair, like everything in the house to sit on, our kids' high chair, like everything, Right? And there was a particular stool that we had that was similar to this, but looked a lot better. And it was really cool. The thing about it is it was broke. And it really couldn't hold everybody up. But I always wanted to keep it out there because it looked really good. And so one day, there was a lot of people that came, and they invited people. And I said, as long as someone who sits there is like maybe like a petite little, you know, college girl or something like that, right? And so that particular girl sits on it, and I'm talking, and we're going through our discussion and whatnot. People were confessing sin, and the Spirit is showing up. It was amazing, right? And then, and then, it collapsed, and she fell down, and her face was like, ah, and she looked, she's embarrassed, and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, it's our fault. It was broken. <laughs> like, the only reason I even had it there, because I thought it looked good, and now it's all, you bro, you broke it. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? And she's just super embarrassed, just super embarrassed, and after everybody left, my wife looked at me, and she goes, you set her up, and I'm like, I know, I know, but I thought, you know what, if anybody's going to be on, it's going to, no, not even her, right? Dang it. <laughs> Embarrassing. Um, the picture of that is, it looked good. You know what looks good? Moralism. It looks good. You know why? Because it looks just like it's supposed to look. Some of the, the most religious and a pejorative way, people, no matter what the religion may be, they actually look more like what God calls us to be like. They actually do more of what we're called to do. And so on the surface, it looks exactly the way it's supposed to look like, but its root is not the gospel. Its root is not Jesus. That means, particularly, that could be, there could be people in this room that your whole desire to be at church, your whole desire to be around teaching, your whole desire to be a Christian is because you think that God is in the business of behavior modification. No. The gospel is about transformation. It's a turning to a new creature. And he does it from the inside out, not from the outside in. God does it by planting a seed of the gospel in your heart by the Holy Spirit, and it's from the inside out, not the outside in. And so you have to ask yourself the question, is my behavior something that is rooted in my love for Jesus, 
Or is it my behavior something that's rooting in something different? Because if I'm not connected into the vine, it was Christ, then the fruit that I'm producing at best is an ornamental fruit. It's not something that is true. It's not something that is real. Paul is saying there was a zeal that they had. He goes, I bear witness. They go after it hard, but it's not the righteousness from God. And here's the righteousness from God. The righteousness from God is a righteousness from him in which he clothes us in Christ with his righteousness. That means no matter what you've ever done or whatever you will do, God himself in Christ has bled for you and has forgiven you of your sins apart from you, before you, to forgive you, past, present, and future. And then he not only died for you. As Christians, we love talking about Jesus died for us, and this is amazing, but he lived for you. Meaning that right, those righteous requirements of the law, he actually fulfilled it for you. And so everything that God would demand or expect of you, he has already done it in Christ for you. And so when you are in Christ Jesus, not only you are accepted and not only are you clothed by the righteousness of Christ, but you are now, as Paul said in Romans 5 and 6, you are hidden in Christ. You know what that means? That as you walk around as a Christian, God is not looking at your past failures or your future successes or the opposite. He's always looking and loving you the same as he loves his son. That when Jesus walked this earth and God says, this is my beloved son, I love him and I'm well pleased. That even in your daily activities, even in your life, old and young, that God is saying, I'm well pleased with you. Not because of your performance, because of what Christ has done on your behalf. That that brings us a supreme confidence that no other religion can bring us. We never have to worry, like my friend, will I be right with God? We can trust and know for sure I am right with God because it had nothing to do with me but everything to do with him. And I trust in his son, Jesus. That, that, he's saying that is the righteousness of which we have. Now, are we working that out? Is that righteousness being worked out in our life? Does God call us to obey? Absolutely. Does he call us to be his children and to look like and live like his children? Absolutely. But looking like and living like his children is not what makes us his children. Jesus does. And it's good news. Not good advice, not something you have to do, something that has already happened in which we respond to, and it brings us and elicits joy and praise. Amen? Paul closes with this one verse, and he says this, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And what he's saying is this, everything that the law demanded, everything that it required, the goal of the law is Jesus. And Jesus himself is both the goal and the termination of the law. Not that we don't use the law anymore, but Jesus himself is the fulfillment of it. Everything that God wants of you, everything he expects of you. You know, some of us have parents that we grow up thinking, man, they expected so much of me. We never can live up to it. It's my whole thing. I shared with you before why I hate the word potential. Like, oh, he's got potential. And it's like, all you do is when you tell someone they have potential, you put an unbelievable amount of pressure on them. And it usually happens in the athletic realm. Oh, you got potential to be great. No matter how good that player is, he's always going to feel like a letdown. God doesn't look at us and go, oh, you have potential. He looks at us and goes, you're not good. <laughs> and he stops, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, he, and he says, here's my son. And every single person who is found in him becomes great because of Jesus, not by any performance or anything we could or couldn't do. Amen? Let's pray.